0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you once again, and I always enjoy uh, coming here, and um, I'm grateful to my brother who um, is willing to drive me and to my friend Tom who is here helping me as well. I couldn't do it without um, the support system that I have, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, As we finished our series on Romans last time I was here, I was wondering where we should go next, and I I was praying about it and thinking about it, and I really feel um, like it would be good to do a study in the book of Luke. So that's what we're going to start today, a study in the book of Luke. We're going to try to go verse by verse as much as possible. Um, this could take a while, but I like the book of Luke because it is... It is a detailed account of Jesus' life, and why this is important to me, especially in this day and age, is that a lot of people say that in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door, and you you can can't possibly be uh very intelligent because you don't you if you were you would realize that we just got here by chance, and there's no reason for us to be here. Why that means you're more intelligent, I will never know. But that's what people say today. But this book was written by a physician by the name of Luke, and the reason that he wrote it, I think partially, is to prove that intelligent people do love Jesus. And they have a reason for doing so. Um, And so I have four points today that we're going to um, deal with. And the first one is simply Luke's purpose in writing. The name of my message, by the way, is God's Unfolding Plan. So if you're making notes, the name of the message is God's Unfolding plan. And of course we know that God's plan was unfolding well before the first chapter of Luke. But this is where it's starting um, to come to fruition. It says in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent Christ into the world. And so this is where we've arrived at when we open the Bible to Luke chapter 1. We've arrived at the fullness of time. And this is how Luke begins his gospel. He says, For so much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of these things, which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, From the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of these things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, actually, even though this is only four verses that we just read, there's a lot in here, and I probably could do a whole message on that. But I just want to take a few moments to look at a couple of these things. Luke begins. Right off the bat with letting us know why he wrote this. He says, I wanted to set forth in order a declaration of these things, which are believed among us. So I think what he's saying is there's a lot of things that have been taught to you. A lot of things are coming out. And I want to make sure that all the things that we believe about Jesus are put in order. So that you can see that God is a God of order. Paul would later write that God wants us to do everything decently and in order. So when we tell his story, we should do the same thing. And he says, even as they were delivered unto us, from people who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. No doubt as Luke is preparing his gospel, he is talking to the people that have lived this. And of course he had a close association um, with the Apostle Paul who met Jesus in bodily form and talk to him. And so he's saying, I'm not just going to write what I think happened. I'm going to write what I know happened. And so, and that's how we need to to approach our presentation of the gospel. You know, we can believe the Bible because it's true. And we can share scriptures because they're true. But nothing speaks more loudly than a personal testimony of what God has done in your life. Because you and you alone can tell others what God has done in your life. Um, and then he goes on to say, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write under the in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of these things wherein thou hast been instructed. You know, a lot of people say that you can't know whether you're going to heaven. That's a common thing. People say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. I, you know, You know, I've done more good than I have done bad. So I think at the end of the day, God will realize that. And hopefully, if I'm lucky, he'll let me in. But we don't see a lot of maybe in the Bible. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen. So when Luke is writing this, he's writing it from a standpoint of, I'm writing this so that you can have a certainty of the things that you've heard. I'm gathering eyewitness accounts. If I was in a courtroom and i was trying to make a case for or against someone it would be my duty as a attorney let's just use that as an example to gather evidence so that the jury can hear the evidence and render a verdict and that is what luke is doing here he's <coughs> gathering evidence so that you can make a decision for yourself who Jesus is. And the decision of what you decide to do with Jesus has eternal consequences. And Luke continues, It seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now there is some discussion um and debate as to who Theophilus is, I tend to believe that he was a specific person because reading this in the plain sense, it makes sense and one thing that my dad often says to me, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So I'd be interested in hearing your feedback on that but for the purposes of this study, I'm going to assume that Theophilus is someone that was dear to Luke. Perhaps it was someone that he was trying to appeal to him in the gospel and he thought the best way to reach Theophilus is to write these things down in order so that he knows there's indisputable proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he can be certain. On the lines of this certainty, could somebody read 2 Peter 1.16-19? Second Peter 1, 16-19. This will cast some light onto what we're talking about when we refer to the certainty of the things that we believe. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables Father, honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. So, the Apostle Peter, the one that's writing these words in 2 Peter, he's writing from first-hand experience. He walked with Jesus for three years, day in and day out. He not only walked with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, But along with James and John, was in what comprised the inner circle of disciples. When God wanted to convey a message to just a few disciples, He took Peter, James, and John separate. He did this on the Mount of Transfiguration, which Peter references in that passage. That they were with Him on that mount. And remember, Peter woke up and he realized that that Jesus was transfigured. And he says, Master, it's good for us to be here. We'll build three temples. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And what did God say? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And it's interesting because at that point, Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this until I have been glorified. So then after uh, Jesus rose from the dead and after Peter was restored unto God, Peter's writing his epistle and he remembers the story. And he says, Jesus told me to wait until after he rose to tell this story, but now I can and so he's laying it out as an example, as evidence that what Jesus said, Jesus meant. So the second part of this passage, the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, you've probably heard me say this before, but one of my favorite things about the Bible is that God takes broken or seemingly useless people, and he uses them for his honor and his glory. And it's often the people that we least expect that God will use. Maybe at one time we expected that he would use them, but the time has long past in our economy. But this is what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke 1, 5 to 10, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia and his wife who was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office, Before God, in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not perfect. And we'll find that out in just a few moments. But to have it say in the Bible that you were blameless is pretty high praise. And for 2,000 years, people have been reading those words. And that makes me wonder what kind of legacy am I leaving? Am I leaving such a legacy that if time continues that long, which I'm not sure it will, but if it did, 2,000 years after I left, would that be something that I would be remembered for? I would hope, even though I often fall short, I would hope that that would be something I would be remembered for. And then another interesting aspect here is that Elizabeth was barren. And we know that God has done this in the past because he did it with Sarah. I wonder if Sarah's story went through Elizabeth's mind after she found out she was pregnant. But the point here is, in the, especially in the Jewish culture, it was considered a b- bad thing, a curse, To be barren. Matter of fact, often the first thing that God would do when He was punishing someone, whether it be the Israelites themselves or someone on behalf of the Israelites, was to make them barren. When the Pharaoh took Sarah as his wife into his harem, the thing he did while Pharaoh had her in his house is he made the whole household of Pharaoh from the greatest to the least, barren. And so it's significant here. This isn't just some some scattered fact. This is something that was of grief to mine, to Elizabeth and to Zacharias. And I'm sure that some of their friends were like, if you're so blameless, if you're so dedicated to God, why are you barren? And sometimes people can, can have that attitude of if you are so dedicated to God, why are things not working out better for you? I know that I have that about myself sometimes. But we see that Zacharias went in to do his job. I think that's one of the first points I want to make on these particular set of verses is that often we want God to do more for us but we're not doing for Him what He's already given us to do. If we're not faithful in little things we'll never be faithful in much. But because Zacharias was doing his job was where God wanted him to be then he was able to meet Him there. And uh, as we move along to this third point, we we see a, um, a reward for their obedience. The third point is the reward for the obedience of Zacharias and Elizabeth. It says, And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn back to the Lord their God, and he shall go before thee in the spirit of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you imagine the excitement that would come from a declaration of this magnitude about your child from God himself? Not only are you going to have a child, but I'm already going to let you know how he's going to impact the world. that must have been very exciting I'm sure in some ways it was a little bit troubling just from the standpoint of you know he's not ours he's gonna have a job to do and I'm sure it wasn't a happy day when when John left and said I have to go and do my job I have to go into the wilderness and eat locusts and wild honey, and I have to declare the coming of the Lord. It's quite interesting that God would orchestrate it, so this was not only was he the forerunner of Christ, but he was also, in an earthly way, a relative of Christ, a cousin of Christ. So he was in that family line and actually when when the angel later goes to goes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a son. And she says, How can this be? Because I haven't known a man. I haven't had relations with a man. I'm not married. I'm a virgin. How is this going to be? And he says, your cousin Elizabeth is, is pregnant and it's the sixth month with her. For behold, with God, nothing, not some things, not a little bit of things, nothing shall be impossible. Again, the declarative statement. When God says something, He's not wavering. He's not saying something may happen. He's saying it will. And every time he has said something will happen in the past, it has happened. And so if there's still something that he says will happen, you can guarantee that it will. If someone could read Matthew 3, 1 to 3. Matthew 3, 1 to 3. And we'll look at kind of the fulfillment of what God told Zechariah and Elizabeth. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness you Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying to the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his cause straight. What did we just read? We just read that God told Zacharias that John would be great in the sight of the Lord and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And when you turn to Matthew chapter 3, you see that that is exactly what he is doing and ultimately it cost John his life for standing up for what is right because John said to Herod it's not right for you to have your brother's wife but rather than repenting he threw John in prison and because His brother's wife hated John, no doubt, because of what he had said. He allowed himself to be persuaded to cut John's head off. And it's interesting that even though John was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was used by God, he still was human, he still had frailties, he still had questions. And so shortly before he goes to die, he said he sent some of his helpers to Jesus. And they said, our, our friend John wants to know, are you the one that was prophesied or do we wait for someone else? And Jesus said, go tell John that the lepers are cleansed That the lame are healed. Because I am that person. I am the one who has been sent. And so even John needed encouragement in that hour. And Jesus gave it to him. And you would think that perhaps because of his great work for God. That God would have. Worked his magic, maybe as he later does for Peter, and led John out of prison. But he didn't. He left John there and he allowed him to die for his faith. We don't understand why that is. We don't understand why later God allowed Peter to walk out of a prison cell. only to, at the end of his life, stretch forth his hands on a Roman cross, much like his master, though he was crucified upside down, and die for the sake of the gospel. We don't understand the wisdom of God, but we know that God can be trusted. And as Zacharias is um, hearing this, he's in disbelief. And God deals with him as he feels he must. So, the fourth point and final point of the day is about God's loving discipline. We're in Luke one eighteen to twenty right now, and it says, And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings, and behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my word, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Luke one 18 to 18-20 Now, from a human perspective, this kind of confuses me. Because later in, in Luke 1, when the angel um, goes to Mary, she asks a similar question. God doesn't make her mute until her baby comes. So, I can only surmise from that that God is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that He knows where people need to be met and where they need to be challenged in order to best serve Him. And in Zacharias's case, it was necessary that he become mute so that he could take the time to think and to pray and to believe God and Mary she must have had an open heart fully to what God Had said, even though she asked this question, the angel kind of prophesied that when he said, "You are highly favored among women," and then when she and perhaps it might have been because of a hesitation on Zacharias' part, because see, with Mary, when she is when when she is told this, what's her response? She says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Even so be it unto me, according to thy word. And if you think about that, her, the stakes were much higher in her case because she risked giving up Joseph, the man she knew she was going to marry. I don't know enough about them. know whether she loved him at the time. But I do know that she knew that he was going to care for her. And I do know that she knew there was going to be a cost. And we don't see recorded the conversation that Joseph has with Mary. But we do know that she told him before the angel came to him because he was going to put her away privately. Because he didn't want to make a public spectacle of her. Which says a lot about Joseph himself, because most of us, if we were in that position, would tend to want others to know about it. Want that person to suffer humiliation and disgrace. But nonetheless... God chooses what he will for individual situations. And so we see him disciplining Zacharias, making this declaration. Let's look at a cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 8. And this is speaking of the discipline of the Lord. If somebody... Can read that. So, we often think of discipline in, in a negative light. And obviously, if we, if we have to be chastened by the Lord, it's not because we did something positive. But the very fact that we have been chastened by the Lord, or we're going through chastening by the Lord, is an evidence of our seal Of the Holy Spirit until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even this upright man, this Zacharias, who was before the Lord blameless. He was still a man. He still had frailties. He still doubted. And what's interesting about this is that God could have said, I'm going to strike you dead because you doubted me. As a matter of fact, if you've read anything about the Old Testament, when a priest goes into the Holy of Holies to offer incense, they had a rope around their, their uh, waist. And they had a... Bells on the fringes of their robe because if they fell dead, then the people needed to know so they could pull them out. And yet, God still loved Zacharias. And He did what was necessary to reach Zacharias and to give him the confidence that when God says something, He will do it. And we'll find out next time exactly what the results of this situation in the temple is. Remember at this point, Zacharias is still in the temple. People are waiting for him to come out. And if you want to read ahead and prepare for next time, you can begin to read the rest of Luke chapter 1. It, should, it will be exciting to read the rest of this and see how Zacharias's confidence is transformed. How God's choice of discipline was the right one. And how bold Zacharias becomes. May we learn these lessons. May we learn that as God's plan has unfolded, that we are now part of that plan. God prophesied many years ago that there will be an end to all things. But He has not made that end yet. Why? Because He's patient. To us. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have you come to repentance? Have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are talking about today? Can you as a young lady say to the Lord, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. That you would do what he asks you to do. Could you do as Joseph did. And do everything that God commanded you because you had confidence to believe that He would only tell you to do what was best for you. That's the challenge that I want to leave with you today. And as we continue on through Luke, we will continue to see definitive statements, declarative statements, definite statements that will hopefully leave us at the end of the book with just one question to answer. Is Jesus who He said He was? And if He is, what am I going to do about it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, these opening verses in the book of Luke. We thank you that you moved upon Luke, the great physician, to write these words, to provide details. Um, Perhaps for some of the people reading this, they, they knew some of the people in these writings. And by understanding their part in the story, they were able to see much more clearly the truth contained. Lord, we pray that we would not just read and forget, but that we would read and remember. We thank you for examples of righteousness like Elizabeth and Zechariah. We thank you for examples of loving discipline like you did with Zechariah when you made him mute until the day that his son was born. We pray that we would be such as ones who would receive gladly the chastening of the Lord and that we would learn and grow through it. I ask that you would bless each and every one here and that they would feel your power in their lives. And that if they don't, that they would answer the ultimate question, who is Jesus Christ to me? He ask this in Jesus' name, and for His praise, amen.